Welcome to NTD Evening News, our top story tonight. Former President Trump back on the ballot in Colorado for now. The state's attempt to remove him meets with a challenge in circumstances. The U.S. Supreme Court now holds the key as to whether to boot the former President Trump from the ballot. Is President Biden sending Democratic operatives to Nikki Haley's events? Arian Pastor brings us what the Republican candidate is alleging and more on the upcoming primaries. Republican firebrand Lauren Boebert of Colorado is switching districts for the 2024 election. That to boost her chances of staying in Congress. Find out what she's making that move. The Israeli military unveiling details about a tragic friendly fire incident that killed three Israeli hostages. That's as the IDF issues a stern warning to Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon. How are they responding? Jason Perry reports. The White House touting what it calls a very productive meeting with the Mexican president. See what they're coming up with in response to the border crisis. The house where four University of Idaho students were murdered last year is now demolished. But some of the victims' families are against that decision, saying the home could have provided evidence. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Iris Tao and for Tiffany Meyer. The attempt to keep former President Trump off the ballot in Colorado likely won't be successful, at least not for the primaries. Colorado's Secretary of State assuring that Trump will stay on the ballot unless the U.S. Supreme Court weighs in. Secretary Jana Griswold states Donald Trump will be included as a candidate on Colorado's 2024 presidential primary ballot when certification occurs on January 5, 2024, but not if the U.S. Supreme Court disqualifies him. The secretary added that she supports disqualifying Trump, but the state GOP appealed the Colorado ruling yesterday, so the decision is now up to the U.S. Supreme Court. The high court could affirm or overturn the Colorado Supreme Court ruling or decline to take the case. The secretary is urging the U.S. Supreme Court to act quickly, but there is a question as to whether it will act at all before the January 4th deadline. Even if Trump stays on the primary ballot in Colorado, another wave of challenges to disqualify him could bubble up before the general election. The Civil War stirring debate in the 2024 election. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley under fire for not citing slavery as a cause of the war when pressed. NDD's Arian Pastor brings us her response. At a town hall in New Hampshire on Wednesday night, presidential candidate Nikki Haley was asked what caused the Civil War. Here's what she responded. The cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. She was later criticized from Republicans and Democrats alike for not mentioning slavery. Even President Biden's Twitter account commented saying it was about slavery. Haley on Thursday clarified her statements while on the radio show Pulse of New Hampshire, saying she knows it was about slavery. What I was saying was, what does it mean to us today? What it means to us today is about freedom. That's what that was all about. She then took the whole thing a step further when she said the person asking the question was sent by President Biden. Biden and the Democrats keep sending Democrat plants to do things like this, to get the media to react. We know when they're there. 
We know what they're doing. Why is Biden doing that? Why isn't he doing it to any other candidate? She added that her team has noticed these people before and that the person asking the question refused to give his name. Meanwhile, many Republicans say they're losing trust in the elections. A new poll by the Associated Press found that only about a third of Republicans say they have high confidence that votes in the Republican primary elections will be counted correctly. In contrast, over two-thirds of Democrats have high confidence their party will count votes accurately in its primary contests. This comes just weeks before the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primaries, both to be held next month. And lastly, GOP candidate Chris Christie responds to critics saying he should drop out of the primary race by launching a seven-figure ad buy in New Hampshire. Some people say I should drop out of this race. Really? I'm the only one saying Donald Trump is a liar. He pits Americans against each other. Every Republican leader says that in private. I'm the only one saying it in public. Christie is coming in third behind Trump and Haley in New Hampshire polls. However, he's much further behind when looking at nationwide polls. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert will seek re-election in a different district. She's blaming what she calls progressive money groups, accusing them of buying her district to prevent her from winning in 2024. Boebert, seen here in this video she released Wednesday, says it's the right move for her personally, as well as for those who support the conservative movement. The two-term congresswoman is facing a tough re-election campaign against Democratic rival Adam Frisch. He lost to Boebert in 2020 by a few hundred votes. Frisch is currently outspending her in the race for Colorado's third congressional district seat, $7.7 million to Boebert's $2.4 million. Boebert will run for the state's fourth district seat. Six-term incumbent Republican Ken Buck will not seek re-election. Boebert is traveling the state apologizing after the release of a video showing her misbehaving with a date at a performance of the musical Beetlejuice in Denver in September. What exactly happened when the Israel Defense Forces accidentally killed three Israeli hostages? Israel now shares their findings. It also comes as the IDF issues a strong warning to Hezbollah, a terrorist group in Lebanon. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest on the war. Hundreds of Israeli youth gathered in Jerusalem on Thursday, urging for the release of the hostages held by Hamas terrorists in the Gaza Strip. We're here because we have people our age in Gaza. We want them to come back to their homes, and that's why we come here. We want them to, to come back. And time is ticking for the more than 100 hostages still being held captive in the Gaza Strip. Last week, we reported that a 73-year-old American-Israeli hostage had been killed and his wife was still in captivity. Now, her community in Israel says that she was actually killed on October 7th when Hamas terrorists murdered over 1,200 innocent people in Israel. Meanwhile, this former hostage, Chin Alma Goldstein, who did make it out alive, shared her experience on that tragic day. She said Hamas terrorists burst into her family's home and killed her husband and her oldest daughter on October 7th. Then Hamas took her and her other three children as hostages. They were held captive for 51 days before they were released. She explained what it was like. Some hostages were beaten, handcuffed for some hours. Not just men, women were beaten too. 
and we heard of sexual abuse, some firsthand, and some were girls we met who witnessed it or had heard about it. She and her other three children returned to Israel in this military helicopter. Meanwhile, other families were crushed earlier this month after Israeli forces mistakenly shot and killed three Israeli hostages in the Gaza Strip. On Thursday, the IDF released the findings of their investigation. The IDF spokesperson explained that one soldier initially fired at the three Israeli hostages, killing two of them, and the other ran away. Then, two other IDF soldiers who did not hear the order to hold their fire shot and killed the third hostage. After entire days of encountering explosives, watching your friends die, having RPGs fired at you, encountering terrorists wearing civilian clothes without a weapon, pulling you towards all kinds of explosives in the streets, in that situation, a soldier stood at a window with limited visibility. He made a mistake. He fired mistakenly. Meanwhile, Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu said they are having discussions about getting the hostages released, but he did not give any details. As the IDF continues to push forward in the Gaza Strip to defeat Hamas and bring the hostages home, things are heating up across Israel's northern border. Recently, the IDF appears to be hardening their stance against Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon saying that if the terrorist group does not stop firing on Israeli communities, Hezbollah could cause a full-scale war with Lebanon and that Israel could turn Beirut into another Gaza Strip. However, Hezbollah on Thursday appeared unfazed by Israel's recent remarks, saying they are not intimidated by threats or warnings and they are ready to escalate if necessary. Jason Perry, NTD News. Following up on our coverage of the claims about Hamas controlling UN relief operations in the Gaza Strip, we've just heard back from UNRWA. Julia Tuma, the director of communications for UNRWA, says the agency has strict clearance processes for all of its staff in Gaza, adding that UNRWA shares a list of its staff with the government of Israel every year. She also says that UNRWA has never received any response or objections from Israel about the content of the list. The U.S. announced on Wednesday that what officials could say could be the final package of military aid to Ukraine. That's unless Congress approves supplemental funding that's now stalled on Capitol Hill. The military aid package is worth around $250 million and will be pulled from Pentagon stockpiles. It includes air munitions, artillery ammunition, and medical equipment. According to a Pentagon spokesperson, no more funding is available to replace weapons taken from the department's stock. President Biden is urging Congress to pass another $110 billion aid package. More than half of that money is intended for Ukraine. It also includes $14 billion for Israel and another $14 billion for the U.S. southern border. The U.S. and Mexico have now agreed to work closer together to tackle the border crisis. The announcement comes after a Wednesday meeting featuring Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NDD's Daniel Monahan has more. Both sides in the talks face pressure to reach an agreement after past steps failed to stop the influx. As many as 10,000 illegal migrants a day have been encountered at the southern border this month. Mexican President López Obrador has said he is willing to help limit the surge, but wants progress in U.S. relations with Cuba and Venezuela, two top sources of illegal immigrants. Blinken wrote on X after the meeting that the U.S. is committed to partnering with Mexico to address shared challenges, 
including managing the unprecedented irregular migration in the region, reopening key ports of entry, and combating illicit fentanyl and other synthetic drugs. Back up north, city mayors discussed the illegal immigrant crisis in a virtual meeting. New York City Mayor Eric Adams issued an executive order Wednesday to deal with the emergency, requiring charter bus companies transporting migrants to give a 32-hour notice and arrive only between 8.30 a.m. and 12 p.m. Monday through Friday. We cannot allow buses with people needing our help to arrive without warning at any hour of day and night. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson blamed the crisis on Texas Governor Greg Abbott. The reckless and, quite frankly, the unsafe behavior of the governor of Texas has caused a great deal of trepidation, to say the least. As the talks took place, the march of migrants to the U.S. continued. This Venezuelan migrant says he gave everything he had to keep up, saying being at the back of the pack is dangerous. I had to move forward, move forward, always asking God for help to strengthen me. Mexico says it has assigned over 32,000 military troops and National Guard officers to enforce immigration laws. But officers made no attempt Tuesday to stop a caravan of about 6,000 migrants from walking through Mexico's main inland immigration inspection point near the Guatemala border. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is beating the war drum. He's ordering the military, the arms industry and the nuclear weapons sector to speed up war preparations. Kim said on Wednesday that Pyongyang would expand strategic cooperation with his allies. North Korea has been expanding ties with Russia and China. Meanwhile, Washington is accusing North Korea of supplying weapons to Moscow for the war in Ukraine. The Biden administration has also accused Russia of giving technical support to North Korea's military programs. And coming up, the University of Idaho has demolished the off-campus house where four students were stabbed to death last year. But some of the victims' families are against that decision, saying the house could have provided more evidence. Gypsy Rose Blanchard's release from prison will have her story and the role she played in her mother's 2015 murder. Automaker General Motors is suing the city of San Francisco. What's behind the dispute over a higher-than-expected tax bill? And 2023 has been an impactful year. With only a couple of days left, we take a look at some of the year's top news stories across the globe after the break. Welcome back. The University of Idaho has demolished the off-campus home where four students were fatally stabbed last year. Right before the demolition began, two of the victims' families pleaded with officials to save the home, arguing could provide evidence during the trial. Their concerns, however, did not change the outcome. Ivan Rodriguez has the latest. We wanted to pay our respects and uh, watch the house get demolished. Crews knocking down the off-campus home where four University of Idaho students were brutally stabbed to death last November. Originally, the university planned to tear it down in July, but the plans were delayed until December when the school announced attorneys for the suspect, Brian Koberger, had been given access to the home in order to prepare for trial. Prosecutors also entered the home this month. 
Well, we certainly understand that there are a lot of emotions around that house and for the families especially. Uh, we also listen to our community and uh, talk with the prosecutors and the defense and believe that now is a really good time to go ahead and take that house down. Before the demolition, the families of Kaylee Gonzalez and Zana Kernodal asked the university and prosecutors to preserve the home in case it provides evidence during the murder trial. The university says prosecutors told school officials the house is so substantially different than at the time of the homicides that a jury wouldn't be authorized to see it. The defense also didn't oppose the demolition. That to me was a pretty shocking part of this because that structure of the house, the fact that it's three floors, the logistics of how this horrific murder could have happened is of critical importance in the trial for both sides. With the house gone, the university intends to create a memorial garden to honor the four students. I'm Ivan Rodriguez reporting. Koberger pleaded not guilty to four counts of first-degree murder. Prosecutors propose his trial begin next summer. Gypsy Rose Blanchard is out from prison early. She served more than seven years for her role in her mother's murder after her mother for years forced her to pretend she was ill. NDD's Christina Corona has more on that update. Gypsy Rose Blanchard was released from prison Thursday. She plotted to murder her mother after years of being forced to pretend that she was suffering from leukemia, muscular dystrophy, and other serious illnesses. Gypsy was released around 3.30 a.m. local time from the Chillicothe Correctional Center after serving seven of her 10-year prison sentence on second-degree murder charges. Gypsy's case attracted nationwide attention when reports surfaced that her mother Mother, Claudine Dee Dee Blanchard, killed in 2015, had effectively kept her daughter prisoner, forcing her to have over 30 surgeries, use a wheelchair, and a feeding tube. But it turned out Gypsy, now 32, was in excellent health and not experiencing any developmental delays. Her mother suffered from Munchausen syndrome by proxy, a psychological disorder where parents or caregivers seek sympathy through the exaggerated or made-up illness of their children. Children. Through this, Dee Dee and Gypsy met country star Miranda Lambert and garnered charitable contributions, a visit to Disney World, and even a home courtesy of Habitat for Humanity. Nicholas Godijon, Gypsy's boyfriend, is serving a life sentence for the killing. Christina Corona, NTD News. Automaker General Motors has sued San Francisco for over $120 million. The company claims that it was charged too much in taxes. General Motors has sued the city of San Francisco, seeking to recover more than $100 million. The company alleged that it was charged a higher tax bill than warranted because its crew's self-driving car unit was improperly used to make the calculations. The case was filed in California Superior Court in San Francisco. According to the complaint, GM is seeking $108 million back in taxes over the course of seven years, as well as $13 million in penalties and interest. The Detroit automaker said San Francisco-based Cruise is operated separately. GM generates only a minimal amount of sales and should not be used to calculate GM's liabilities in the city where the parent company has a limited presence. GM said in the lawsuit that it sold only about $677,000 worth of goods in San Francisco in 2022. In its complaint, the company said the California government code mandates that the city taxes must fairly reflect the proportion of activity actually carried on within the city and they do not either generally or as applied to GM. 
The cruise unit was suspended after an October accident in San Francisco caused crews to pull its U.S. cars off roads, undergo a safety review, and cut nearly a quarter of its staff nationwide. With 2023 coming to a close, we'd look back at some of the biggest news stories of the year. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has a third quarter summary of our special multi-part series. Riots in France enter a fourth day on July 1st, after 17-year-old Nahel Merzouk was shot and killed by police after trying to drive away during a traffic stop in a Paris suburb. France's Interior Ministry deploys 45,000 police officers to ward off the worst crisis of President Emmanuel Macron's term since the Yellow Vest protests. The ministry reported over 700 officers injured, 5,000 vehicles burned in the streets, and close to 1,000 buildings vandalized, looted, or set ablaze. As the Russia-Ukraine war rages on, President Biden announces cluster munitions will be sent to Ukraine. The controversial weapon is banned in over 100 countries, partly for dangers posed to civilians years after a conflict. Some of the so-called bomblets scattered when dispensed can initially fail to explode. The U.S. says the munitions it's sending have a dud rate of around 2.4%. Ukraine pledges to use the explosive only to dislodge concentrations of enemy soldiers. Russia hits Ukraine's southern port of Odessa with airstrikes in late July and launches missiles at the Ukrainian city of Kriviri. Ukrainian officials say at least five people are killed in the attacks and dozens injured. Russia's defense ministry says two drones are intercepted and destroyed, a mile from the ministry's buildings in Moscow, in what it calls a terrorist attack by Ukraine. While in the Middle East, Israeli forces hit the city of Jenin with drone strikes in an operation to destroy terrorist infrastructure and weapons. Palestinians set up roadblocks with burning tires. Israel deploys roughly 1,000 troops. The IDF reports underground explosive caches were found, one hidden in a tunnel under a mosque. The military says around 1,000 weapons were confiscated and 30 suspects arrested. A military coup in Niger at the end of the month ousts President Mohamed Bazoum. Leaders of the coup declare Presidential Guard Chief General Tiani as the new head of state. The seventh military takeover in West and Central Africa in less than three years is raising regional security concerns over the threat of insurgencies by groups linked to Al-Qaeda and ISIS. August, the month of the mugshot. Former President Trump is charged with a four-count indictment August 1st over disputing 2020 election results. Special Counsel Jack Smith accuses Trump of conspiring to defraud the United States. Conspiring to disenfranchise voters and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. Trump pleads not guilty August 3rd and tells reporters it's a very sad day for America after leaving court. This is a persecution of a political opponent. This was never supposed to happen in America. Trump is hit with a fourth set of criminal charges in Georgia August 14th, accusing him of trying to overturn the state's 2020 election results. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis bringing a grand jury indictment against Trump and 18 co-defendants by using Georgia's RICO Act, a law usually reserved for the mafia and organized crime. Trump's historic mugshot was released August 24th after being booked on felony charges at an Atlanta jail. Trump has denied any wrongdoing in both cases and says they are politically motivated. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan is arrested and imprisoned after being sentenced to three years for illegally selling state gifts. Russian mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin is listed as a passenger killed in a private jet crash August 23rd. Russian authorities say genetic testing confirmed the Wagner boss was dead after spearheading a mutiny in June. The war in Ukraine enters its 18th month, marked by Russian air and missile strikes from Odessa to Kyiv. Workers in Kyiv replace a Soviet-era hammer and sickle on the capital's largest monument with Ukraine's coat of arms. An unmanned Indian spacecraft lands near the south pole of the moon in a mission seen by many as critical for lunar exploration. 
In September, a 6.8 magnitude earthquake in Morocco left close to 3,000 people dead. The Moroccan government reported almost 60,000 houses damaged, over 30% collapsed. A collapsed dam in eastern Libya during Storm Daniel flooded and destroyed parts of the coastal city of Derna. The UN confirmed over 4,000 people died in the disaster and 40,000 displaced. An investigation for negligence was launched. Poland announced it would no longer arm Ukraine to focus on building up its own stocks of weapons instead. An exodus of over 100,000 Armenians begins after Azerbaijani forces take control of Nagorno-Karabakh. Armenia accuses Azerbaijan of ethnic cleansing. Hundreds of Armenian protesters took to the streets and called for their prime minister's resignation after Armenian forces surrendered the region. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, what has the United Nations done on the war in Gaza? Our guest calls the UN an anti-Semitic organization and says the US should cut off funding. Hear more about his take on the UN's role in the ongoing war. And fighting human trafficking with a smartphone. How an app could allow anonymous reporting of transnational crimes after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us right now, here are some of today's top headlines. It's looking at former President Trump will be on Colorado's 2024 presidential primary ballot. Although he's been kicked off, the state GOP has an appeal pending in the U.S. Supreme Court. Unless they disqualify him by January 4th deadline, Trump's name will remain on the ballot. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley under fire for not citing slavery as a cause of the Civil War. She defended her remarks and accused the Biden administration of sending Democratic operatives to her events. Facing a tough re-election campaign, Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado says she will be seeking election in a different district. She's accusing what she calls progressive money groups of buying her district. The University of Idaho has demolished the off-campus house where four students were fatally stabbed last year. Two of the victims' families pleaded with officials to keep the home, arguing it could provide evidence during the trial. A second American-Israeli citizen believed to be held hostage by Hamas is now confirmed dead. Meanwhile, tensions are escalating between Israel and Lebanon's Hezbollah terrorist group. The United Nations coming under scrutiny. Amid Israeli allegations as being complicit in Hamas activities in Gaza. This is as a second American hostage held by Hamas is now confirmed dead. Joining us now to discuss the latest developments in the war, we have Josh Hammer. He's a senior editor at large for Newsweek and the host of The Josh Hammer Show. Josh Hammer, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So first, today is confirmed that an American woman believed to be held hostage by Hamas was actually killed in the October 7th attack. She's a mother of four and grandmother of seven who taught English to children. With that happening and now Hamas saying it's open to a proposal for a complete ceasefire, what do you think? Well, first of all, it's just an, another reminder of the unspeakable medieval barbarism of the Hamas Islamist death cult, which should have been stark and obvious for the whole world to see during the Hamas Holocaust of October 7th, but has only just continually festered in the world's mind. And it should be another reminder for the Biden administration and all of the Western world powers that be that there is one way and one way only that this conflict ultimately ends, which is for the Hamas 
Islamist terrorist jihadist outfit, which, again, is indistinguishable from al-Qaeda, ISIS, or any kind of other Sunni jihadist outfit, the way that this conflict ends is very simple. Hamas needs to wave the white flag, unconditionally surrender, and release all the hostages. If they care, an iota, if they care at all about the actual Arabs who live in Gaza, they will do that tomorrow because that is when the war would end. And secondly, President Biden this week was on the phone with Qatar's leader and talking about efforts to get hostages out of Gaza. What do you think about the prospect of another ceasefire deal here in exchange for hostages getting out? And how could that affect the war here? So first of all, the, the Western world's approach to the Emirate of Qatar has been tragically misguided since the very beginning of this conflict. From the very beginning of this conflict, to me, two things were very stark and obvious. One, the United States in particular, which, oh, by the way, about a year and a half ago actually formally designated Qatar as a quote-unquote major non-NATO ally. Qatar, by the way, is where the Hamas leadership, Ismail Haniyeh, and the other Hamas top dogs, they live in luxury condos in five-star hotels in Doha, in Qatar. So it should have been very obvious from October 7th, October 8th, right when the pogrom struck, that the United States and the other Western powers should be applying tremendous pressure on Qatar to extradite the Hamas leadership to the ICC and to other international tribunals, ideally to the United States itself, because American citizens were killed, were taken hostage, to face justice for their war crimes. That should have been stark and obvious. Unfortunately, the Biden administration, with Antony Blinken leading the charge as Secretary of State, they have barely applied any pressure whatsoever to Qatar. Instead, they are going to Qatar as if they are some sort of mediator, as if they can be trusted to mediate some sort of hostage dispute between Israel and the very Hamas leadership that they mollycoddle in their capital of Doha. It's the, it's the logical equivalent of asking the arsonist to put out the fire. Another controversy surrounding the whole war here is the UN, United Nations. Israel has apparently accused the UN of being complicit in Hamas propaganda, is also now vowing to stop granting automatic vis visas to UN employees. Can you talk about, is there any instances of the UN allegedly supporting or facilitating Hamas activities? Do you agree with Israel's allegation there? The United Nations for at least 50 years, uh, kidding not, literally at least the past half century, arguably even further than, than that, in fact, has been a structurally and inherently anti-Semitic organization. It is for sure an anti-Western organization. The United Nations Mali coddles the Chinese Communist Party. They cozy up to all the Arab states. The Iranian regime, for God's sake, has previously been in a vaunted, prestigious position when it comes to the women's leadership part of the United Nations, the Women's Rights Summit or whatever word that they use to describe it there. The United Nations is an apologist organization for the world's dictators, for tin pot despots, and it is here, there, and everywhere anti-Semitic. The nation of Israel disproportionately accounts for not just a plurality, but an overwhelming outright majority of the United Nations General Assembly, the UNGA resolutions. They literally, the, the resolutions that the UN draws up, both pre and post October 7th, that are against Israel, exceed the rest of the world combined, exceed North Korea, Syria, Iran, China, Russia, you name it. It's totally farcical. It is absolutely egregious. I personally have been calling for the United Nations to be kicked off of America's shores for a very long time now. I have no idea why a penny of the United States taxpayer dollars goes to that wretched, vile organization. I think the U.S. taxpayer contributes roughly 20 to 25 percent of the entire U.N. budget. That is totally egregious. It really must stop. God willing, it will stop when a Republican takes office come January 2025. But in the short term,
Israel is, of course, completely, completely right to not grant priority visa status to these terrorist apologists in Turtle Bay in New York City. And lastly, before I let you go here, the U.N., like you mentioned, drafting and, and passing resolutions nowadays, not on the side of Israel, but instead, you know, urging it to stop fighting. What kind of message do you think that would send to other countries like Russia and China? Well, it's telling them that they have a free hand, obviously, that they will not be condemned, that they will not be held accountable for their actions when they go into invade other sovereign countries, when they go rape and pillage and slaughter and do all the absolutely horrific and unspeakable Nazi-esque war crimes that Hamas committed on October 7th. And as we discussed at the beginning of our segment here, is, is continuing to commit to this day in the subterranean terror tunnels in Gaza. It sends the absolute worst message imaginable, unfortunately, it is par for the course for the United Nations, which has been exactly this way, for, again, for 50, 60 years. The United Nations, back in the 1970s, infamously, infamously declared that Zionism was a form of racism. Recall that the United Nations was founded in the aftermath of World War II, in the aftermath of the Holocaust against the Jewish people, trying to create a better world. And then it was less than 30 years later, they were calling Zionism racism. Now Israel is by far the most targeted country, again, more than the rest of the world combined. It is disgusting stuff. It sends the absolute worst message imaginable, moreover, to Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un, and all of the rest of the world's most petty tyrants. Josh Hammer, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. The Ukraine war is leading to more human trafficking. The United Nations saying that criminals are exploiting refugees for fleeing violence. And that from the Crime Stoppers organization will soon allow people in the affected countries to report such crimes anonymously. Here's more. Crime Stoppers is bringing its app to Eastern Europe to let people report crimes involving things like terrorism, human trafficking, drug smuggling, and illegal arms dealing. All anonymously. They will have a way to uh, report that without fear of retribution of either the traffickers or corrupt politicians or corrupt police law enforcement. Crime Stoppers Vice Chairman Jim Fuda says it'll be called the TCI app or the Transnational Crime Initiative app. People will be able to attach text, photos, audio, and even video to their reports without revealing their identity or location. The app will know them only by a numeric identifier, and the detective investigating the crime will even be able to communicate with a tipster. Crime Stoppers has been very successful in the U.S., with nearly a million arrests and $11 billion in recovered stolen property and seized drugs. Europe shows great promise as well. One press release and had 47 tips in a week. So people want to talk, they're just afraid to. So we took the to Serbia. We're ready to open a program there. And in the meantime, Moldova came to us because of the influx of refugees, the Ukrainian refugees, brings a whole new level of corruption. The app will be introduced in Serbia and Moldova in the first quarter of 2024. This is Dave Martin for NTD News. And coming up, Shenyun Performing Arts kicks off its 2024 season in the United States. Find out why a filmmaker calls the performance a beautiful reminder to treat each other well. Ellen College Football News. Can a team claim a national title without even making the playoffs? Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we return. 
Welcome back. Xingyun Performing Arts has just kicked off its 2024 season in the U.S. The New York-based classical Chinese dance company is again wowing audiences with a brand new production. Audience members in Houston share their impressions of the performance with NTD. Here's what they had to say about the experience. Shenyun Performing Arts wrapped up its first three performances in Houston, Texas on December 27th at the Jones Hall for the Performing Arts. I love it. I love a good technical performance. Um, I also liked how much morality is brought into uh, the performance. It's very elegant and it's different from a lot of the modern companies and things that are going on today, so it's really nice. Professional dancer and model Brooke Ashland says Shen Yun has some of the best techniques she's seen and called it top of the line. I very much felt inspired to leave a better person. <laughs> um, again, back to the morality part, I really liked how much they emphasized kindness and being there for your fellow man and just kind of bringing humanity back into the everyday. And so I felt it was very inspiring and it was also really nice to see it at Christmas time too. <laughs> I thought the performance was brilliant. I mean, it was very athletic, but also really motivational and, and uh, very lyrical. I love the dancing and the acrobatics, but I also love the storytelling, the messaging, you know, the, the sort of message of, of kindness and thoughtfulness, and also just how important a story is. You know, like, why do we tell ourselves stories, you know, to figure out who we are and what is good in the world? Shen Yun, Performing Arts' stated mission is reviving China's traditional culture before communism. Shen Yun can be translated into English as the beauty of divine beings dancing. The award-winning producer says she thinks it was the way different scenes capture different eras, styles, and feelings that she loved, and that, quote, the sense of preserving culture was very sincere and powerful. And we're not only learning about Chinese culture, but getting a sense that we're becoming part of it by participating in this event, you know, and being part of helping to maintain that line of history. And, um pulling that story together. For me, coming from a different culture and coming over here today, I learned something new. I learned a history about a culture. I learned about what's what you see on the TV and what you see over here in the place are different things. So it was really, you know, informational, educational, and also peaceful for me. I felt like I, I, I'm leaving in a really good mood. <laughs> and just the sense of, of um, people pulling together to make something beautiful and that just, you know, beauty itself is, is an important goal and an important, yeah, and I think the other thing was just a sense of, um, a sense of good in the world. I think we've become so divisive and the show really was a, was a really beautiful reminder to, to treat each other better. It was very energetic, performers were really good. I would definitely come back and see it again. It was really nice. My, I just feel very uplifted and inspired to go forth being better. NTD News, Houston, Texas. We've all seen the Xingyun posters, but what does it really like to be a Xingyun dancer? Here's a sneak peek at our special interview about the lives of two siblings and what it takes to perform on stage as principal Xingyun dancers. So what is it like? What was your childhood essentially like? Because that involves a lot of hard training and work and discipline at such a young age. Yeah, I mean, once you start dancing, it's like it ha you flip your world upside down. You're training for hours every single day, so you have a lot of basic dance training, but on top of that, also rehearsals. So every year we're putting on a completely new performance. That means 
were on the road for six months and also at the base in New York for six months. And it's just a lot of training, very physical, but also a lot of mental. It's very mental because, um, I mean, learning movements is tiring, it's hard, and you have to use your brain just as much as your body. I imagine as a 13-year-old as boy, you also need to build up that discipline. Was that something difficult to do? Uh, definitely very difficult, but it's something you almost, you need to find what drives you to be a dancer. Like, just going into it because you like it, that's how you start. But as you dance, you know, or doing anything in life, you have to find when things get tough, what really drives you. And for me, even though I was young at the time, the mission of Shinyun is actually something that is really amazing. To revive a culture that was almost destroyed, to revive 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture. And I think when you think about it, even when things get hard, that is actually something that's very inspirational for a young person. And mm. it really drove me through some of the tougher times. That is incredible that you understand this. How long have you been dancing now and what keeps you going now? Um, I started dancing when I was 10 years old. I would say that um, there's so many aspects to it. I definitely agree that it's, it's something so, it's hard to wrap your mind around at first at such a young age that I'm going to be reviving traditional Chinese culture. Um, but as I got more into it, I realized that it's just something really, it's something that's so much bigger than myself. And it was a really special feeling to know that I'm part of something bigger and I'm part of a mm. team. Be sure to tune in for this full special report tomorrow on NTD Good Morning at 7 a.m. Eastern. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, a lot of news to unpack right here. A couple of quarterback changes in the NFL to discuss, including a potentially very expensive one. So tell us, what's the complication with Russell Wilson's salary? Well, the complication is how much he makes next season, whether he's released or not. You know, it's $39 million, but reportedly he's owed an additional $37 million if he can't pass a physical next March. So if the Broncos do decide they want to move on from him, you probably don't want him to get injured first and have to play all that extra money. Maybe that's partly why he's sitting this week. I don't really know. No, either way, he's going to count a lot against our salary cap for the next two years because of how they've structured his contract. In any case, they're starting Jared Stidham instead. Meanwhile, the Giants are benching the popular rookie Tommy DeVito in favor of veteran Tyrod Taylor. Now, the Giants are already out of the playoff race, but Denver is still mathematically alive, but uh, just barely. And now in the college games, some, are, some players for Florida State are saying that they should be the national champion if they finish off as the only undefeated team left. Of course, that would mean that they could potentially circumvent the playoffs. Is that any, you know, thing new has been has there been any like, president for that? Yeah, six years ago, Central Florida went 13-0, including an upset of Auburn in the Peach Bowl, and they decided for themselves they were going to claim a national championship. Now, they're about the only ones who recognize that team as winning the national championship, but it's part of the problem of these exclusivity of these playoffs. I mean, the fact that not every team had a path to making it there. I mean, what else can you do besides win every game like Florida State did? Now, as ridiculous as that's been, it's still better than the BCS before, which was essentially a two-team playoff. Up, and way better than before that in the 90s when it was just this mishmash of New Year's Day bowl games and then you wait for the next day for the eight people to decide who they were going to rank number one. Hopefully all these disputes will be behind us for good as they expand the playoffs for next season. And now shifting gears to politics. 
in sports, which potentially I'm more familiar with politics. <laughs> so former ESPN talent Sage Steele said she was asked by ESPN to stop tweeting her support for Riley Gaines, who's been, of course, one of the few voices to speak out against transgender and women's sports. Why do you think this topic has become so controversial but still one-sided in media coverage? You know, I think what happened to her is an example of why there are so few who take this stance. Now, Steele told this to Riley Gaines on her Gaines for Girls show on Outkick.com. They reached out to ESPN, which gave them a no comment on the matter. Now, Steele said, quote, I was asked to stop tweeting about it. I was asked to stop doing anything, saying anything about it on social media because I was offending others at the company, end quote. Now, I've interviewed a number of female athletes who tell me the same thing, and that is the majority of the female athletes that they know do not think it's fair to compete against a biological male in sports, let alone want to change in the same locker room with them. It's always been a fairness issue, never about hating the person you know, for their choice. But they see how those who speak out are slandered by most of the media as like a bigot or whatever. So it's kind of rare to see two people unafraid of the consequences of saying something like these two. And now looking at sports action tonight, seems we have NFL, NBA, even some college bowl games again tonight. What sticks out to you the most? Yeah, a pair of ranked teams are playing right now in the Pop-Tarts Bowl. That's NC State versus Kansas State. Now I'm from Kansas, so I'm especially interested in, interested in that game. But there's an even bigger game tonight with uh, Oklahoma playing Arizona in the Alamo Bowl. The NFL, meanwhile, has what should be a defensive struggle as the Jets play at the Browns. Both teams are without their top quarterbacks. Both teams have great defenses. Finally, in the NBA, those poor Detroit Pistons have lost 27 straight games already. That's a single season record. But if they lose tonight, it'll tie the overall two season record, I guess, which was set by Philadelphia a few years ago, 28 straight losses. Now, I gotta say the odds are kind of stacked against them because they're on the road against a team with the best record in the league, the Boston Celtics, so good luck to them. Well, it seems like you're going to have a very busy night tonight watching very all the games. Busy. Good luck to you and, of course, a lot to unpack tomorrow. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Iris Tao. Good night.